Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here, and I wanted to ask you a quick favor. If you like the show and it has helped you, please remember to rate, review, and follow it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Also, consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. And now, let's get to the creative chat. Have you ever wondered about the concept of doing it all and whether that's even really possible in real life? Like, how can you have the family, the career, the house, the relationships, the kid, the joy? How? If you're a woman, this question has probably got a lot of weight to it for you. It's something we're faced with all the time. I think there comes a point in every woman's life where we start to consider how and when we might become parents, if at all. Maybe becoming a mom isn't something you've ever wanted. Maybe you're already a mother and it's been a turbulent journey, or maybe it's been bliss and you've found your way to make it work for you with everything else in your life. But no matter what, the thought of becoming a parent, especially a mother, can be extremely scary because it can mean a lot of sacrifice, potentially your career, your body, your mental health. Yes, it can bring a lot of joy and it does bring a lot of joy, but also a lot of sacrifice that needs to be acknowledged. So today on Unleash, you're going to hear about motherhood through a creative lens with a guest who paints a very new picture of what motherhood could look like when we embrace our bodies, our stories, and the world of information at our disposal. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach, and this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, and spirituality. Today's guest is Danielle Goss. She's an ICCE certified childbirth educator, lactation consultant, founder of Just Breastfeeding, and author of the hilarious, unabashed, and empowering book, Vaggie Tales, Memoirs from Down Under. Danielle is trained in oral tethering and specializes in the identification and treatment of lip ties and tongue ties. If those words sound weird to you, that's okay. I didn't really know what that was either, but let me tell you, when you find out about it, it's mind-blowing, and whether you have kids or not, it could totally change your life. I wanted to have Danielle on the show outside of that amazing information that she's going to bring, because she is a great reminder that creativity is not reserved for actors, painters, or singers. It's every human's birthright, literally. I mean, birth and raising kids is one of the best examples of creativity around. And today we're talking all about the creation of life and doing it on your own terms. This episode is such a fun mix of Danielle's really interesting creative journey, her road to entrepreneurship, the science behind so many of the growing pains of motherhood, a vulnerable look into her experience with postpartum depression, the stigma in women's health, and what steps we can take to empower and advocate for ourselves when it comes to our health. We honestly cover so much ground. There's something for everyone of all ages in this chat, whether or not you're a mom or want to be a mom, I think there's just going to be something super valuable for you here. So... Now let's get to it. Here she is, Danielle Goss. Oh my gosh. Well, Danielle, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Our mutual friend, Paria, has been talking about you for months and just saying what a powerhouse you are. And uh, I'm excited to talk about women's health today and to get into vaginas and lactation and all of the above. So thank you for being on Unleash. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Of course. So, okay. One of the reasons I originally started the show was because I wanted to show people that creativity wasn't just reserved for painters or singers or actors. It's your birthright as a human being. Birth, as you know, is like the ultimate show of creativity and creation. This whole earth is. Yep. So I really am interested in having you on because you've taken a very creative approach to something that actually, I mean, it is more of like a newer thing within the world of healthcare, but still like you might look at it like anything in the medical field is more traditional, but you've taken a creative approach to this traditional thing. But before we even get into that, I want to know what your journey was like. Like, how did you find lactation? Like, how did that become (laughs) your specialty and your passion? 
<laughs> it's it's a great story actually it's not like you're a little girl and you're like I'm gonna grow up and be a lactation consultant although I did grow up in a house of showgirls because I grew up in Vegas so that does play a role like yeah my dad was legit a, a professional mind before that was lame and so we toured like we were like traveling gypsies honestly with like excitement 79 so my boyfriend's a clown do you get it? You get it. Yeah. I told my dad, that's why I'm scared of clowns. I was like, you're the first face I saw in that whole like white thing. I literally had the best picture of him holding me with like this white face. And I'm like, uh, my baby face is all like, oh my God. <laughs> anyway, fast forward. I had a full theater scholarship. My mom was a theater teacher. I was going to be a theater teacher. And so I went to school and then life happened. My sister, who's no longer with us, like we got custody of her sons. And so I was 18 and they were four and 18 months. And so they were like, here, you're an adult, you should take them. And I'm in college. So my mom, bless her heart, and my dad were just like, we'll take them. And so I had to drop out of school and ended up just working full time. And then I got married and then I got pregnant. Knowing I didn't want to work, like as a mom, I did not want to work full time because I felt what I was doing at the time was just going to pay for daycare. And I was like, I don't want some rando raising my babies when I'm, mm. I, I can do it myself. So we were in our Lamaze classes, which in itself is a lost art. And I'm listening to the instructor and I turned to my husband. I'm like, oh my stars, this is a monologue about vaginas and breasts. I can totally do this. And so he's like, yeah, you absolutely can't. Because vagina was like a dinner table word growing up for me. So I started out as a childbirth educator. So I, I credit that to my daughter, um, who is now 19. She is the reason why I uh, transitioned from the theater to boobs and legit <laughs> pissed off my parents. Like they were the parents that were legit pissed off that I left the theater for medicine. And I was like, um, I kind of think that's backwards, but uh, paycheck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry, my father, that's what I'm going to do. So totally went in a different direction, started in nursing school. I just got hungry about all of it. And in the midst of that, I had I was told I'd never had children. That's a story in itself. Like I had my first baby at 22, second baby at 24, full hysterectomy at 26. So the fact that I have them is a living miracle because I had one ovary left. I had gone through chemical menopause prior to being married. So at 19, I had endometriosis, I have lupus and I had, I was rupturing like cysts every wow. six weeks. Right. Long story short. Anyway, we got pregnant, had Alyssa, didn't think I'd ever have another one. And on my daughter's first birthday, I got pregnant with Elena and my mom looks at me, she goes, Oh my God, you're pregnant. And I was like, shut your face. I'm not ready to do this again. And then sure enough, I called her that Tuesday crying going, Oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. So had her and remember staring at her at six days going, oh my gosh, my nipples are going to fall off. I can't feed you, but I'm now working full time in a mother baby unit. It's a stigma. If I don't, I was a total closet bottle feeder because I didn't want anyone to know that I wasn't capable of doing it. I got through it, but I only breastfed her for five months. My postpartum depression was so horrific. I remember locking myself in bathrooms because my kids were so close. I worked nights. I never slept. I had no family around. My husband, you know, didn't know what else to do. We ate the kids swap at the hospital. So I had one of those like aha moments of no woman should a ever have to feel guilty about how she feeds her baby, mm. regardless if it's breast bottle formula, breast milk chest feeding regardless. What's chest feeding? So chest feeding is, I do a lot of work within the LGBTQ community. So I have a lot of like lesbian families that will ask me to induce lactation or vice versa. Ah. Or if you're an adopted mom, you know, if you adopt a baby, I can induce lactation on her so that she can successfully breastfed her adopted baby. Aww. And so we oftentimes will use like a feeding tube and then that becomes chest feeding. Oh, cute. Yeah. So that's kind of how I transitioned. And I knew that number one, we feed the baby. Number two, we do what makes you the best mom for that baby. And so I dropped everything, went back to school and became a lactation consultant. And here I am all these years later. Okay. Uh, I don't know where to begin. That's one of the most <laughs> amazing stories I've ever heard in my life. First of all, can we just touch on the fact so so often on the show, I'm like, what do you do when your parent doesn't support you on your creative journey? 
I can honestly say I've never had somebody come on the show and say, my parents were pissed off when I went into medicine. <laughs> I know. They, they still, they're now they're like, oh, thank God. But you know what's been great is I think that's why I'm so different as a lactation consultant. Yeah. Because, and I, I made amends with them. I started a theater company at night. It was called Don't Cut My Song, DC Notes Productions which has since gone away. Um, but I was like, slow your roll, mom and dad. I can still do theater and be with nipples all day. It's fine. So anyway, um, I, I think I, that's what makes it different because when you have a baby and you're in that vulnerable time and your hormones are all over the place, every single family I meet, every mom I meet, every baby, it's a different scenario. Even if they have come to me with their third baby, mm -hmm. it's different. And you have to think outside the box. If you try to do everything textbook, you're setting them up to fail. So I have found my theater training has helped me, believe it or not, tremendously in how I'm able to reach the families where they're at. Mm -hmm. I'm able to get down on their level. I've been able to be creative in how I create plans and simplifying things. And that's a lot of what I pour into my books too, is that it's just breastfeeding. It's just, you know, it doesn't have to be hard. And, you know, we have Google at our fingertips now, which is my total nemesis. So I'm like, let me be your Google. So that's kind of where it all falls into. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also a theater person. I got a BFA in acting. So yes. I think the great thing about it is, yes, it's like, it's hard to unwind that if that's been your dream for a long time. But if you find that that dream is no longer serving you, I can honestly say that I would trust theater people with anything. Like if I see theater on your degree and I'm hiring, I'm going to look at you so much more closely because I know you're adaptable. You're yes. used to working in really weird conditions. You're used <laughs> to working with all different kinds of people. You're used to being all different kinds of people. <laughs> the level of empathy and compassion you have and thinking outside the box and creativity. Theater people can do anything. And it's a shame that that degree or that way of living is looked at as a throwaway. I know. Because to me, my theater degree was so much more valuable than my communication degree by far. Oh, 100%. I think I use my, my theater training more in everything. And you get it as a, as an actor, like I tease, I'm like the same year I played Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors and then Diana next to normal. Could you get more opposite? Right. But you learn like, she, that's a bipolar character. Right. And I was like, but I learned so much in all of that. And I encounter families that are like that. And you have to be quick on your feet and improv. And when you're dealing with doctors that let's be real, the nurses know more than the doctors and their MDism. Like it's, you have to be on your toes. And I a hundred percent agree with you. I think everybody should be required to take an acting class, regardless of what their field they're going into. No, it's, it's one of the most valuable things that I ever did. Do you still do acting then? Cause next to normal wasn't that long ago. Like, is that a side hustle, side passion? It was before COVID. Um, yeah. You know, honestly, I, I've done it my whole life, but right. that was my last hurrah. It took a lot out of me. But if I would do, totally do it again, I mean, my kids are older now, so I would in a heartbeat. I love it. It was my first love, right? And then right. boobies became my second. So, but yes, I would in a heartbeat totally do that on the side if I could. It's just a great, it's great therapy, honestly. It is. Um, my mom was bipolar. So I grew up oh, wow. basically being all those characters. And it was probably some of the best therapy that I could have ever had by playing that role. I remember being the kid who essentially had to raise the parent, you know, so it was so healing and it was so precious to have my mom come and see that because she's a theater director. She's well-renowned and she every night came and just was like sobbing in the audience. And it was just this connecting moment for us of like, Okay. Like it, theater was the best therapy. So I almost, I hung my hat on that role and I haven't done much since because it was just such a powerful moment for me and my family really. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that about, you know, your mom and mental health. That's a huge part of this show because it's such a big part of the creative journey. And I know you also opened up about being in postpartum depression and I guess, especially for moms out there who are pursuing either entrepreneurship or a creative path, what would be your advice to them if they're struggling with depression, anxiety, bipolar, any of these things? Obviously, you know, to get help, but like, what do you wish someone had said to you when you were in that place in your life? Mm, that's, that's actually huge. 
I'll kind of address both, right? So as I had postpartum depression my second time around, uh, you know, I've struggled with depression my whole life. My mom will tell you that mental illness does not gallop in our family. It stops to greet each and every one of us slowly. And so I, <laughs> when I became uh, depressed, not understanding it, I was so alone. I was so young and I felt that everything I was going through, I was the only person in the world experiencing that, right? Like no one else would have the same fears as I did. No one else would understand. I'm so afraid that if I do A, B, and C, or someone sees me with my baby, they're going to see that I'm not worthy to be her mom, right? Because everything I'm doing is wrong. And obviously that was a lie and not true, but in your mind, when you're feeling so sleep deprived and your hormones are up here in tank, it's, and, and something that I had, which is super rare, which I have a history of, you're going to learn all about me today. Um, I have a history of, of sexual abuse in my past. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful in the sense of, I used it to heal. And one of my big platforms is helping mothers who've gone through that because your body keeps score. And so when you birth, you're not only birthing your baby, you're, you're birthing yourself into motherhood. And if you have unhealed wounds that you're dealing with the fear of, am I going to be able to handle this? Because now I've just gone through a trauma again is super powerful. And same thing with breastfeeding. And when I mentor other, anyone in, in healthcare, consent such a big thing for me, probably because it gave me back my power. And I think because when I had given birth, I had realized the re-traumatizing thing that had gone through, mm. through therapy and counseling and not being afraid to take medication because there's a stigma around that. You know, a lot of people ask me, how in the world are you where you are? And I'm like, uh, Jesus and Prozac, like truthfully, like it's yeah. my faith got me through everything. Um, and I don't know where I would be without that. And I wasn't afraid. I look, I tell people this all the time and mothers who are suffering with depression. If you have strep throat, you're going to take an antibiotic. Your brain right now needs extra medicine. So we're going to take something to help with that, but you still got to talk it through. It's yes, it's a bandaid in the moment, but there's other things you have to go through. So for me, it's very important to ask consent before even to like, I'll go to a mom and I'll be like, is it okay if I touch your breast? Mm. And they're like, uh, duh, it's your job. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but let me at least buy you dinner first, you know, as we're like going in there. Right. Um, and, and that was valuable for me because when I was being a breastfeeding mom, And I had nurses just coming in and grabbing the awareness of your body is no longer yours hit me like a ton of bricks. And I think that played a role and there's something called DEMER, which is dysphoric milk ejection reflex. So when your milk ejects, like when the baby latches on and your milk ejects, your dopamine levels will fluctuate, Mm. right? Because oxytocin, which is our love hormone is also the same hormone that is used to release milk. So a lot of women have what we call DEMER, which is when you have an oxytocin release, your dopamine tanks for like 30 seconds. And you get this overwhelming fear of just dread of like, and it's a hormone thing, but there's again, a stigma wrapped around mental health around moms. You should be able to do it all. And I can see that in a mom because I've been through it, but it's oftentimes you just need extra B12 to believe it or not. But these are the things that are happening. And when you think about, no one knows that woman's story. So if you go in to care for a woman in women's health and you don't know their story, you can do a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. So my point being is that I get it. And if I could tell any mom is A, you're not alone. B, it's not unusual what you're feeling. And three, get yourself a village because it takes a village to raise a mother and then a baby. Mm. I love so much of what you just said. Now, my question is, you know, I I actually went through something this past year and I talked about it for the first time on my podcast a couple of weeks ago um, with my vulva. I had a pre-cancerous melanoma, basically like a pre-melanoma on my vulva that I had to get removed 
that really opened me up because I grew up Italian Catholic and it was very hush hush. Don't talk about your body. I went to sex ed and I came back from sex ed in like fifth grade. And my mom's like, well, do you have any questions? I was like, nope. And we never talked about it again. Uh, the only like, you know, thing I heard around it was wait until marriage, wait until marriage. Yep. So I grew up in a, in a household that really didn't talk about those things that we never use the word like vagina or penis. Like it was very much pent up. And so when I went through this thing where I had to get a piece of my body in the most intimate spot of my body removed in order to not potentially, you know, get cancer, yeah, it really opened me up and caused me to talk about this. But unfortunately, in the course of that, I did have some doctors who weren't compassionate, weren't caring, acted like it was just anything else, you know, like like they're tapping me on the shoulder instead of the fact that they're taking off a layer of my skin and then sewing it back together. Yeah. Um. So if you encounter a doctor like that or a lactation specialist or a nurse, whoever it might be, a medical professional that isn't giving you the grace to tell your story and share how you feel and, and really be tender and compassionate with you, mm -hmm. what do you do? Like how do you make sure that they hold space in that way? My biggest thing is being an advocate for yourself. And I say that to parents all the time. I say that to my daughters who've gone through health stuff. I remind myself of that. I mean, that's funny you say vulva because I, I just had a whole like reconstruction needing to be done because I went through menopause at 26, you know, so at 42, everything just kind of fell out. And so in the midst of that, I mean, I personally have a lot of female doctors because it's what makes me feel safe. However, I completely understand from the clinician standpoint, it's routine to them. They see it every day, whatever. It's a vulva, it's a labia, whatever. We're going to go in there. The patient that's coming in, it is taking everything in her to be vulnerable, to lay on her back, to put in those cold stirrups, to use the cold speculum, which looks like a freaking duck bill, you know, like all yeah. those things. I mean, it's not pleasant. And there's so many people that it's become the job, right? And that's my beef with healthcare in general. The compassion has gone mm -hmm. for most people and the arrogance has stepped in and they're not reaching that woman where she's at in that moment as a patient. Cause I've been her, I find it incredibly crucial as number one, let me walk you through what's going to happen. Here is why we have to do this. When you are ready, tell me, and then I will, and you guide them through. Like when I've had to do procedures and that is very similar to what you've gone through. Mm -hmm. My approach is I sit there, we talk about it, try to make the room as welcoming as you can. And then I wait until she gives me permission to go ahead and go in and do what I need to do. If I just go without her knowing she's not ready for that. And I don't know what could trigger something or it's just embarrassing. Like a lot of people do not grow up with vagina being a table word, right? Right. There's a stigma around it. And that to me is huge because it shouldn't be. It's part of your body. It's beautiful and it's there for a reason. It's how people are created, right? So it should be just as embraced as your elbow, you know? Like, so that's literally, so I was just thinking elbow. I'm like, why isn't it as embraced as the elbow? Because after this, I mean, I talked about my vulva because I, this happened when I was back home in Michigan. So, like, I talked about it for months on end with my parents because they were driving me to and from doctor's appointments, you know? Sure. And once I did an impression of the little, <laughs> the growth coming out of my vulva, and I was like, hey, where is it? I'm like, it's in the flaps, you know? Like it stuck its head out. Like it just wanted to be part of the conversation. But, you know, after that, it became very common for us to have these kind of talks, to talk about sex, yeah. to talk about anything, really. I also told them I was going to start talking about sex on my podcast. Like I say, I came out as a person. Yay! Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's interesting. Why is there a stigma not just around saying the word vagina or vulva or breasts or lactation, but around women's health in general? Where did this start and how can we get involved in the movement to make this kind of conversation normal? Yes, I love that you call it a movement because it needs to be, you know, a, I think it's a generational thing. I think, you know, religion and faith definitely play a role. For me, I grew up in a Christian home of where you wait until you're married. It was victory through virginity. You know, like I was the true love wait spokesperson. It was like crazy, which on the other hand, like, and I talk about this in my book with bad details about my first time, right? How do you hear about sex, et cetera, et cetera. 
there's such a stigma wrapped around it, even with breastfeeding, like people sexualize it. Yeah. And I, I'm like, uh, do you know why we have these? It's to um, feed. You probably did it yourself, man. Right. So I think people get wrapped in the fact that men are visual, mm-hmm. right? And so anything that we do is causing them to be turned on. And on the other hand, it's like, what if we are needing this to make ourselves feel empowered and beautiful and knowing that what we have and what we go through is normal? It shouldn't be a stigma. And I really think the way that's going to become normal is getting the conversation started you know, sharing women's stories, making other women realize that what they're going through, I went through too, and cry with them, laugh with them, let them know that it's okay. Like a beautiful thing about this, this is great. Um, and I love that you know that it's vulva because the vagina is actually the birth canal. The vulva are the lips, right? Yes. Um, and then you have the clitoris and the whole thing. And the clitoris actually has like a mound behind it. So women can get erections as well. That's the G spot, right? Like, isn't the, cl- like the G spot is actually the clitoris inside? Correct. So like yeah. it's, it's all connected and there's like so many nerves within that area. So yeah, if you were to look through like an MRI, you would actually like see where that is. And if anyone can find it, high five, which is why I'm all about like women figure yourselves out because why do we have to be the ones that are like afraid of it or faking it or having it like we need to take control of our own power, our own bodies and move with it. Right. Right. And there's such a, a hidden problem behind that. And I think the only way it's going to get normalized is if we talk about it. So like, I, I, my parents will never listen to this, which is great. Um, I always <laughs> say that like, I was the Adams family that married leave it to beaver. Right. So when I wrote a book about vaginas and periods and sex, and there's a whole section on geriatrics and gyne- your first gynecological visit. Right. And, and just saying like how sex is carried through all ages and it's okay to be, and it's okay to talk about that. There was quite the uproar in my family on my husband's side because they were staunch Catholics. You don't talk about that. That's a sin. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and I grew up in a home where it was normal. I raised my two daughters to be just as vocal as I was, you know, because here's my take on parenting with that. And I think if families start young, it becomes normal. So mm. my girls are very open with me. They will ask me anything. I will tell them anything because especially now as we're raising children, they have a computer at their fingertips with their phone. And a lot of the time, what they find is going to be completely wrong or it's not perceived correctly. You know, porn is not how sex is. Like it's not the beautiful side of what it was created for. So I started that conversation early. I started it when they were like eight and I made it normal if they had a question. And sometimes they'd come to me and ask something that I honest to God didn't know, which shocked me because I know a lot, you know, and I'd be like, all right, well, let's figure this out. And, you know, we just talk back normal. And what's been beautiful is seeing them grow up to be confident in their bodies they don't feel the need to try and get attention from anyone of the opposite sex or even the same sex. They feel confident in what they are because they realize that their body's beautiful no matter what size, what shape, what they are. Now they're teenagers. They're going to struggle with that as are their peers. But what broke my heart is that I've actually in the parent that their friends come to of like, okay, Miss Danielle, like, what does it mean when my body does this or this? And I was like, Oh, sweetie, like you're 16 and your mom's never told you about sex. And I'm being the one to tell them, which I of course will, because it's my role as women's health educator. But I think if parents are taught how to have that conversation with their children, because it's embarrassing to them, it won't become embarrassing to their children. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Because I think the sad thing is like parents who are trying to get their kids to wait, by not talking to them, actually drive them to do things more quickly. Exactly. And you see it happen over and over. Yeah, they're curious. I mean, the amount of teen pregnancies that I have helped with, you know, with my world is, is heartbreaking. Actually, the number is getting better, but it, it was heartbreaking to see. And it's just because some of these girls, they didn't know. They didn't know what sex was. They didn't know that what they were doing could get them pregnant. Yeah. Right. And that's mind boggling. Like some of them had never even had their period yet. So 
when you think about how these poor kids in general, they don't know what they're doing, but their body's telling them to do something. So they're listening to what these urges are. And we were given these, I mean, God created our bodies to be sexual beings for a reason. So I feel like with anything in parenting, if you explain it to them, the kids aren't going to get curious and go try. That goes with drugs, that goes with drinking, that goes with sex. If you explain, this is what it is. This is why our bodies have these feelings. This is what's healthy. This is what is right. This is what's wrong. They grow up going, okay, I get it. You know, all right, cool. Like they don't feel like they have to go and experiment. Right. And that makes me feel safe as a mom knowing if they get themselves into a situation, they know they can come to me and I'll be like, okay. And they'll say like, don't get mad, but, but this is what happened. And I'll take them in it. And sometimes I've had to walk out and be like, oh my God, I wasn't ready for that. But you know what? If you are not ready to talk about sex as a parent, you are not ready to be a parent, period. Ooh, drop the mic, honey. <laughs> I agree with you, though. It's 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 a part of the human experience. Like, I think that the issue that we've had in society for so long is people are like putting that in another zone. Yeah. It is a huge part of the human experience. I totally agree with that. And I mean, I recently said to my mom, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but I'm like, mom, I love you. I'm like, I think you really need to work through your issues with sex. And like, here are some <laughs> podcasts you can listen to. Yes. I call her my little Puritan. She's gotten like, she's really expanded, especially since I've gone through this whole thing where I had to get the surgery and everything. But, you know, it's difficult because if your parents have issues around it, there's no way you're not going to gain some sort of shame. You're going to get a message either way, but it's better if the parent knows the message that they're giving. Exactly. And I honestly think that parents don't know how to do it. They don't know how to have that conversation in a way because they're uncomfortable, their parents were, it's a generational thing, right? You know, as, as it's going down and then it creates like this horror, which it shouldn't. Right. So that's part of what needs to happen is getting the comfortability behind that so that they don't have to be afraid to have those conversations with their kids because parents want their kids to come to them. They just don't know how to do it. Right. Yeah, no. And I, I totally agree with that. So Anyway, I think this it's a really important conversation, but I do want to get into lactation because I know we've gone around a couple of times. Actually, can you quickly, for those that don't know, define what a lactation consultant is? So it's an internationally board certified program. So we are licensed to be able to perform our services anywhere in the world, which is super cool. Um, but basically what a lactation consultant is, is an advanced care practitioner specific to the science of lactation. There's different levels, obviously, but uh, basically we teach women and their babies how to breastfeed, mm. but there's so much more behind it, right? So as a lactation consultant specifically, I deal a lot with oral ties, which is a big hot topic right now, meaning tongue ties, lip ties, et cetera. Um, low milk supply. I talk about, you know, if mother gets an infection, how to treat that either holistically or do we need to get medicine involved, um, breast surgeries, inducing you know, all of that. So it's really diving into the anatomy of the breast and, and teaching moms how to breastfeed without pain. And Breastfeeding, I say this, breastfeeding is not supposed to hurt, mm. but it often does. And when I say that, women look at me like I've got three heads because women think it's supposed to hurt. So they don't go get the help. If it is hurting to breastfeed, something needs to be adjusted. It could be as simple as a positioning thing. It could be that the baby's got a hidden tongue tie or, you know, lip tie. It could also be that the way that they birthed, you know, the, the baby has tension here. So, wow. and then some women just are going to struggle with their supply, you know, and there's always a reason always. And I think that's where the creativity comes in as a lactation consultant and partly why I, I'm a little different in the aspects that I do because I incorporate so many different modalities. So I love research. I love learning. And, um, so like being creative with, pressure points on the baby and knowing that this baby responds better to this pressure point and explaining it in a creative way. I'll tell the moms like you're the kitchen and the baby's the chef and this is the restaurant and this is when the, the milk is made. Right. And, and it's fascinating because the milk will change based on the needs of the baby. So saliva absorbs into the breast, the body will react. 
It's been really cool during COVID because we've seen a lot of cool things come out with breast milk and how it's actually helping COVID um, and seeing how it's even changing the consistency of the milk. It's a living fluid. So it's a superpower. It can heal a lot of things and, you know, we, we can make it ourselves. So it's really teaching moms how to build their supply, their confidence and and literally feed their babies. So First things first, what is a tongue tie, a lip tie? Because I read on your Instagram that up to 70% of the population has them. Yeah. So there's adults walking around that have them too, yeah? Oh, yeah. I dropped mine treated when I was 40. How can they be released? How do we get rid of them? And how do we know if we have it? What is it? Yeah. And it's such a hot topic. I love that you said this is like, that's my jam. So we all have frenulums. That's the stringy part under your tongue. And you have one on your upper lip. And that Mm. ligament is a collagenous fiber that goes all the way down to your toes, right? So it's a midline effect. It affects everything within that area. So think about it this way. Um, You know, when you snag a sweater and everything kind of bunches up, Mm -hmm. but if you release that thread, it opens up. Yeah. That's how the body is with this ligament and the body will grow around it. It can't stretch. So from an infant standpoint, you'll see them constantly when you think about babies who have been colicky, have reflux, gas, those are all lift ties. Um, when you think about how many adults have had sleep apnea, CPAPs, braces, palate expanders, you know, think about how many people have, have gone through the orthodontic process, that's all ties. And they've actually now linked it to ADD, which, or ADHD, which is pretty fascinating because the tongue is the one muscle that constantly grows, right? So it will grow sideways and put pressure here. And so as an infant, if this is tied, so the, the anterior part of the ligament, if that stretch stringy part is connected to your salivary glands and pulls up, how do I know the tongue cannot Can you look at my <laughs> <You're... laughs> if I had a dollar for every time someone said that? I mean, it's where it's placed that matters, mm. right? So lisping, speech issues like that. If you've ever had a gap in your teeth, that's from the lip tie. So it's the same ligament, but in an infant, it causes incredible pain for both mom and baby. So the way it's treated, um, and what's mind blowing is my daughter, she had hers treated at 16. She is the ultimate reason why you get a tongue tie release. She, and we're trusting the pediatricians that kid couldn't eat solids. She had horrible colic and reflex was on Prilosec for years was put under anesthesia four times before the age of six, because think about how many kids getting tubes in the ears, they get their adenoids removed, their tonsils removed. All of that is related to this tongue and the ties being put pressure. So if the anterior is a typical to the tip of the tongue or tie, if that ligament is growing inward, it causes a posterior tongue tie, which causes the tongue not to be able to lift up to the roof of the mouth to make that nice palate. So it causes sleep apnea because it blocks your airway, right? You're blowing my mind right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, girl, I'm going to get on that train. Um, So long story short, she stopped growing. Like I'm trusting the pediatricians. They're giving her medications. And I think that's where my passion for this specific topic came because I can be quite the mama bear when it comes to things like that. Um, And finally, she just was always in the fifth percentile, right? And doctors get so wrapped up in the numbers Mm. and the percentiles and it has to be this. And she struggled with learning. And, you know, finally her orthodontist after six years of braces was like, yo, can we get this treated? You're 10 grand in the hole. And it keeps coming back. This poor kid was in a car seat until eighth grade because she was just so tiny. So she stopped growing. And the doctor's like, I think we need to do growth hormones. And I'm like, yo, slow your roll. Like enough already. You've done enough to my kid because she was having ocular migraines, et cetera. So long story short, I did my homework. And that's where I found Team Tongue Tie in Del Mar, California, where people just fly over. So Dr. Stacker's a pediatrician. Her sister's a pediatric dentist. They both became lactation consultants, which is super rad. And so they use a technique that's a CO2 laser. And that technology is about four years old. And it's the safest and most effective way to treat because if the tongue cannot work correctly, the body will compensate and it will build extra ligaments in the cheeks underneath the lift here, my tongue grew extra bone because the ligament wasn't working. I had no idea. Right. So the kid who hadn't grown in two years, they fixed the procedure in three seconds, numbered to three seconds, right? 
she grew an inch and a half in three weeks. And I was like, what in the actual hell just happened here? So what happened was because it was causing her not to be able to sleep, she could never get into a deep sleep because the airway was being blocked by her tongue. Her tongue was being pulled back and clenched by her jaw. So she never got into a deep run sleep. So therefore she couldn't grow. It pulled up her whole digestive tract. She couldn't absorb nutrients. As soon as you fix that, which literally took seconds, the kid was able to sleep. She did better in school. She grew. Everything got better. I went in with my like a 10 day migraine, which I've suffered with for 40 years. And I said, okay, whatever you can do, just fix it. And she's like, all right, get on the table. And this little tiny CO2 laser, she goes and she released underneath my tongue, my lip. And I had developed under here and my headache was instantly gone. And when I say my headache was gone, this was a migraine that no one could break for days, weeks. It had gone on, instantly gone. My TMJ was gone. I could hear out of my right ear for the first time. And my lower back pain was gone. And I was like, what is this madness? I must learn all the things. So it is a huge problem because it's genetic, right? And we are learning more and more about how it's connecting to so many different things. And if we can treat that as a baby, cool. I always say it's like they're sucking a milkshake through a straw with a hole in it or running on a treadmill, right? They're burning more calories than they take in. And these poor kids don't know any different. So that's why they get colicky and cry. We fix it early, they're going to grow, they're going to be happy. And now their brain's going to get good oxygenation. So the kids who are at like two who are tied, who aren't getting good oxygenation is causing the cortex of the brain to not develop correctly, therefore an increase in ADHD. Okay. Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you sure you want to go there, girl? I I do. I do. But I want to know what we can do about it. Like, how do we know if we have a tongue tie? And, you know, most of my listeners are adults, I think. Uh, And I know some of them have kids, but there's a lot that don't that are more in like the beginning stages of their lives. So for those people who are adults and like you, maybe having the migraines or other issues, what do we do? Like, how do we know if we have one and where do we go to fix it? I mean, you have to go to someone who knows what they're doing. A typically it's dentists that are doing this because they're doctors of the mouth. Um, certainly Dr. Sacker is pretty one of her known. There's ENTs that are trained in it. My best advice is it, you need to make sure it's a CO2 laser. Mm. You don't want scissors. You don't want a diode. You want to make sure that they know what they're doing because the CO2 laser is the only effective way. So it doesn't reattach, right? Because our as adults, our bodies have already learned to compensate. So in my experience, you know, I certainly went and had to do stretches and jaw exercise to loosen up everything, but I went years without knowing. So how you find out is find a specialist. Oftentimes, if they're really good at what they're doing, they can tell by a picture or they'll have you send a, a video of you doing sucking exercises like, right. Or you know, lick a lollipop or things like that. And, you know, it's amazing. I always tease um, my poor husband. I'm going to say this anyway. And he's like, Oh, things are different now. Like after I got my tongue tie fixed, I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And I told, I told Dr. Sacker who does all ages. I'm like, girl, you need to advertise this because this sure made things a lot better in every aspect of my life. Um, So the way you would know is you just find somebody who's trained in it that can actually take a look and feel. Okay. And you, you just search tongue tie doctor or like, what do you, <laughs> I actually have a list, um, that if you were to go to my Instagram and you want to DM me, I actually have a list of, cause I'm very picky about who I refer to because you can just go to somebody and they don't really know what they're doing. They're just jumping on the bandwagon, but I do have pretty good contacts all over the country, all over the world, actually, even in London and the AAP has a list. And so does the, the doctors of laser medicine have that as well. So I can certainly offer that to you. You could post it if you want or have it in your link tree. And, okay. But yeah, you want the good ones. So it's important to, to know where you're going or just send me a picture. I'll tell you. <laughs> you're the best. Okay. So let's get back to lactation for a minute and to, to women breastfeeding. The thing where you said where it's not supposed to hurt. I feel like, again, this goes back to like so many women never have a conversation about what it's like to have a baby or breastfeed until they're pregnant and have given birth and in the thick of things. Yeah. If someone's breastfeeding now or like looking to do that someday and then they find it hurting, what's the first step? What do you do? <laughs> what do you do to make my nipples not fall off, right? Yeah. Um, 
I would find an IVCLC. There's actually, my husband and I have created something called Mama Match over quarantine because there's IVCLCs that are calling themselves lactation consultants that don't have the training. And that's just, you want to avoid that. If you go to the ILCO website or IBCLC website, there's a whole list of every single lactation consultant in your area, in the country, in the world. Because again, it's an international license. So it will have that list there. But you're going to have your holistic, you know, more granola natural type of lactation consultant. You're going to have your functional um, integrated medicine, which is more along my lines. And then of course you have those very technical medical, that's the way you go. The hard part with these moms is that they don't know who to trust because, you know, breastfeeding is changing each and every day of the process. And so I, it's like the game of telephone. They've got their nurse telling them one thing. They've got a lactation consultant that says one thing that, that contradicts the other lactation consultant, and they don't know who to listen to. So we created Mama Match, which actually matches mothers with a IBCLC that fits their personality, which is important. So really finding someone in your area that knows what they're doing and can sit down and help with you and see, okay, is this a physician issue? Is this a baby issue? Is it a mom issue? And take it from there. Mm, okay, great. I want to ask you a million things, but I want to transition <laughs> to your book because you've got so much great information. So, okay, Vaggie Tales. Yeah. I'm so into this. This is really what made me want to interview you because I'm very passionate, as I told you, about calling out female anatomy and destigmatizing women's health because, you know, we've been at a disadvantage for so long in society. And I think it comes down to talking about it. So, tell me about this book. What does it involve? What inspired you to write it? I actually wrote it with my mom, which is even cooler. Uh, you'll see in the intro, like we literally were on a rooftop bar drinking mojitos and we were talking about this very topic. And we're like, you know what? We need to just write a book about women telling stories about themselves and make them feel better about it. So we interviewed like a hundred different women of all different ages. A lot of the names are anonymous, obviously. And so there's like the history of contraception. There's the history of female products. And then it's full of all these stories of women explaining the first time they had their period, the first time they had sex, the first time they visited the gynecologist, how they heard about the birds and the bees. And in the first chapter, there's 215 names of what people call their vagina. So I had to have the glossary and it's mind blowing. I mean, everyone has something that they call it, right? So we have 215 of those names printed in the first of the book. And so that's where it kind of was born. And my mom has become sick. And so, um, you know, she's in the process of, of passing. So um, she's got another year or so on her. She's feisty. I'm sorry. Um, she's got an eclectic past. Half the stories are from her. Um, <laughs> they really are. We're like, you'll see like all these different random names. And I'm like, my daughter read the book and she's like, oh God, which one's grandma? Which one's you? Which one? I was like, um, but it's basically about women, empowering women. And that's why we wanted to write it. There's stories in there that are going to make you laugh. I mean, it's really funny. I mean, again, I wrote it, so I think it's funny, but so hundreds of women submitted these stories and I'm reading through them and I'm laughing and then I'm crying. And I'm just like, these women's voices need to be heard. And I got some flack from some of my family members of like, how dare you, you know, you don't want to put your name on that. And I'm like, yes, I do. Because first of all, I'm not going to censor what this woman wrote. If she called her vagina a certain name, I'm going to leave it in there. If she has some colorful language, I'm going to leave it in there because that is her story that she is telling to help someone else in the future and pass down that legacy. And so we found that it's given women the voice that they needed. It gave them power behind that. And so many women are healing from it because they're reading this going, I'm not the only one who had that happen to me. Oh my gosh, that's so funny that when I first had my period, it was like this, you know, it's, it's not just about sex. Yes, there is that portion, but it's everything girl, you know, everything that we go through and making it comfortable and realistic. And it's a fun book that just takes the stigma out of it and gives women who wouldn't have a voice, a voice. Yeah. And I especially love, I mean, I love that you're taking the stigma out of all of it, but the period part, like that's something I've also gotten really vocal about. I'm like, I'm going to go buy tampons. <laughs> like I'm very loud. I tell people when I'm having my period now, because yes. I spent so many years being so ashamed of this natural body function. I remember when I was, I got my period when I was 12 
And when I got it, I remember telling my mom, you can never tell dad. <laughs> never. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was horrified. Even up until I was in my like mid to late 20s, like hiding the tampons and CVS and making sure I bought them with something else. It's like there's so much period shame. It, that drives me crazy. Yeah. You know, and that's why I actually went through and there's there in the book, there's a history of where pads came from, where tampons came from, what the Egyptians back in the like BC did as a form of a feminine hygiene. And, you know, my mom back in her day literally had the garter with like the bloomers and the diaper and all of that. And so when I, I was late bloomer, I was 15. My mom swore I didn't have a uterus. Maybe that whole story's in there. She made me go and like get an ultrasound. And they're like, I know there's a baby jumping on there. And she flipped out and started screaming about she's a virgin in the middle of the ultrasound technician's office. Um, But when I got my period, I got the period basket and it was like this big ordeal. And she threw me a period party. And my dad was like, yay, finally. Right. Um, Where the other, there's a story in there about my cousin who was home alone with her dad. And she's like, daddy, I'm bleeding. And he's like, oh, just go get a, just go get a bandaid. And she didn't know what to do. Right. And then it, it finally dawned on him what was happening. So he sent her over to the neighbor, et cetera. But, um, that's the thing. Like, I think with my husband, I've made him go and buy pads and tampons for our daughters. And he was not raised in a home that that was comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so he's really had to grow being married to me um, and having very vocal daughters. Um, But I think it's important. I mean, how do the people think that we exist if it weren't for menstruation? You know? Yeah. And it's, it's just so odd to me that it's so stigmatize. I mean, I guess maybe it does go back to like the Bible when it was like, yep. don't sit on the same bed as somebody who's menstruating. Don't be under the same roof. Like, like you're in the red tent. I swear that happened because women are like pissed off and hormonal and don't want men around them. I would totally be down with that. Yes. There's a red tent. Cool. Can I sit there for seven days? I'm down for that. Fine. Happy to be exiled. Yes. Yes. I do think it goes back to those times though, truthfully. Yeah. I'm so happy you're doing that, though. Thanks. And um, I know you have another book coming up. What's that one going to be all about? That is my breastfeeding book. Uh, It is called The Booby Theory's Guide to Breastfeeding. And it's written for the new mother as if she was in my office having a consult with me. Hmm. So it's lighthearted. It's fun. I break everything down and explain it in a lot of theatrical ways, believe it or not. (laughs) Shocking. Um, I actually, you know, because you have to make them feel empowered. And, and that's what I want these moms to leave feeling and they're, they're reading it going, okay, this makes sense. And it's all within one section. It's not technical. It's consistent. So I've been called the booby fairy, the lactinator, all those. My, that's why my podcast is called the lactinator. But the booby fairy, I was like, that sounds good. So it's my booby fairy desk book. And that is really there to educate new moms. So they have something solid that's relatable and understandable from a clinician that knows what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, there is something I quickly wanted to touch on because you talked on your Instagram about how somebody who was like a competitor, was making up lies about you. And it's so interesting because it's something we talk about a lot on the show where anytime you're an independent contractor or an entrepreneur or an artist, you're setting prices, right? And you could be doing something incredibly altruistic like what you're doing, Mm -hmm. but you still deserve to get paid for your time. Right. And so how do you deal with that kind of judge? I mean, obviously you dealt with it head on, but like how does it hit you when somebody – kind of comes at you first of all with like falsehoods but then like judging your prices for the service you're rendering right you know and it's funny my old approach is that breastfeeding should never cost so much that you can't get the help so I purposely as long as I've done this as advanced as my care and my licensing is I've always kept them low because if somebody needs help breastfeeding and she can't afford it we'll work something out right everybody can do something but they don't want to get it for free. I'm like, cool, make me brownies. You know, like it's something that they can get that care. And practitioners know that. And for years, finally, I had so many doctors that are dear friends of mine being like, girl, raise your prices. There's people out there that cost more than you and they don't know what you know. So I got it comfy, you know, but we're also starting to see insurance companies cover it, which is nice. But what you're referring to, which just cracks me up is 
my patients become my family. They really do. They're my friends. They are my family. I let them text me and they will go on. They'll write reviews about the comfortability and how I'm, you know, I'm different. And so I know you can pay people to write reviews. And so that was what was on. And there was in that particular review, it was she only, you know, she's everything for money and she only refers to so-and-so. And I was reading that just started laughing. So I'm like, if anyone who truly knows me knows, I would do this for free if I could, yeah. if I didn't have to pay rent in my office, you know, but a worker is worth its wages. Right. And so what I realized is if at a certain point your price reflects your skill. And so I had to start to match my skill and my experience that was still affordable. Right. So I, 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 I still, I hate it. I money's the worst part of this whole thing. Like, I just want to, I just want to free the boobies everywhere and give them all, just heal them all, you know, but that's why I laugh at that type of stuff because also, you know, I'm not going to please everyone. There's that's okay. And that's how I think everyone should just approach. Like, it's okay. It's okay. If you're not everyone's cup of tea. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm there for the, for the masses. Yes, you are literally there for the masses. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I think you're amazing. I have one final question because you alluded to it, but I know your daughters, you've got two beautiful daughters and they dealt with some health issues and you were doing this, yep. you were helping them and helping them figure this out all the while building this business. And I know that there's a lot of people who either are parents and thinking about pursuing a creative life or in a creative life who need tips on how to do this. And for me personally, like I think I thought my whole life, I can't have kids until I get every single thing done that I want to creatively. But through the show, and I, I say this all the time because I think people need to hear it, every single person I've ever met on this show has had their greatest success post-child or post-children. Yep. So I think that's pretty cool. But I'm curious to hear what your journey was like, how you kept your mental health going, and how you worked on building your business when you were caring for two little ones that needed a lot from you. Oh, totally. They they changed my world, obviously. Like tra my trajectory in life completely shifted once they were born. And then again, when the second one was born. And it wasn't easy. I, I worked nights for a long time. I studied during the day. There was when I, there were times I was up for like 48 hours, right? Like I just, and I have lupus, which is an autoimmune disorder. And so I try to just push myself on my body sometimes says, um, time out. Thanks. Time, you know, like it just crashes. I will never forget one time when the kids were really little, I came home and I'm like, here's the box of mommy's hair bows. Here's her makeup. Just make me look pretty. And I laid on the ground and took a nap and they just like, it occupied them for like 30 minutes. I looked, I looked like something. Let me tell you when I came out of that, but I found little things like that, that would help. And then of course, as they grew, it gets easier, the older they get. My number one priority is always going to be them. And both my kids have had super rare conditions, but Alyssa specifically, my eldest had a condition called MALS, which is median arcuate ligament syndrome. Basically her diaphragm sat three centimeters too low and cut off the blood flow to her digestive tract. So she was in immense pain four minutes and 13 seconds before she ate. Grey's Anatomy, honest to God, literally saved her life because it was on season 15, episode five, where we figured this out because we spent weeks in the hospital with her. She had lost 30 pounds in two weeks. She got down to 82 pounds and the hospital, because she's a teenager and our healthcare system is so broken, we call him Dr. Asset, um, came in and he was like, you need to learn humility in medicine and wrap your head around the idea that this is just functional abdominal pain and that your daughter probably needs to have a psyche valve and, you know, she's probably a drug addict seeking, you know, morphine. And I was just like, are you, are you kidding me right now? And then, you know, nurse ratchet and mama bear is not a good combo. I just like came out of my skin. And I was like, I don't accept this. My mom gut was screaming, something's wrong. And that's my best advice to any parent. Trust your gut. You know, that kid better than any of us ever will. And so did my homework and Alyssa was actually, she goes, mom, you got to watch this episode. And sure enough, there was one doctor in the country that could take care of her. And so we flew from California to Connecticut. She had massive vascular surgery. She almost died like three times, but we fought, right? We had shirts that said, I don't give up. You don't give up. Mm. I don't give up. You don't give up. And it was a two-year battle of her feeding tube, almost kidney failure. And now she's this remarkable, strong woman that beat the odds on a condition that the doctors should have known about, but didn't. 
And sure enough, it was just doing homework that she figured it out. I mean, it's, that's my whole beef with some healthcare and doctors is that they don't take the time to keep up with the continuing education and research. Had they taken the time to look at her scans, they would have seen this, right? So it, instead she almost died. I just think it's amazing. Cause like, cause to circle back to the topic of the show, like the writer who was writing that show that day, didn't know he was about to save or she or he, or they were about to save somebody's life. And it's been multiple lives. I cannot tell you how many women or how many kids in general, because of that episode specifically are alive today. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. You never know what you create, like how it can change the world. Totally. I know there's creativity in everything. We just got to look for it. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that your babies are okay and that you're such a powerhouse mom and (laughs) just a powerhouse businesswoman, lactation consultant, everything. I'm super excited for your book. Thank you. I'm super excited to potentially get my tongue ties and lip ties released. (laughs) (laughs) I got you, girl. Just come see me. We'll fix it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just feel like I could have talked to you for 19 hours. We could have gone for an hour in any of these directions, but thank you so much for being here. You're amazing, Danielle. And you're so welcome. Hope you have a beautiful day. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to my guest, Danielle Goss. For more info on Danielle, you can follow her at Danielle Goss, I-B-C-L-C on Instagram and check out her website, justbreastfeeding.com. You can also buy her book, Vaggie Tales, Memoirs from Down Under on Amazon, Kindle or wherever you get your books. Thanks so much to Unleashed producer, Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow Unleash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Earner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Danielle so she can share too. Remember, my new song, Pretty Little Boy, is out now. You can get it at the link in my bio on Instagram or at the show notes here on the podcast. And my wish for you this week is that you start a dialogue about your sexual health. Whether it's with your doctor, your partner, or even yourself, I think it's time we all embrace what it means to be human. Because when we release shame, we open up the ability to experience joy, compassion, creativity, all the beautiful things in life. I love you. And I believe in you. Talk with you next week.